everybody, my name is Remy. Welcome to the For the Love podcast with your host, Jen Hatmaker, my mom. She writes books and speaks to crowds, but she mostly loves talking to amazing people on this podcast every week. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Hey, everybody, this is Jen Hatmaker, your host of the For the Love podcast. Welcome to the show today. Um, we are in a really cool series right now and it is stretching me and challenging me and actually encouraging me. I don't know if you remember when we talked with Hillary McBride earlier this year, if not, absolutely go back and listen to that podcast episode, one of our best ever. Um, but when we talked to Hillary, we talked about, um, embodiment and making sure that we remember to care for like these physical bodies that have carried us thus far in our lives. And, um, and so we wanted to think about caring for ourselves in every way through nutrition, through mental health, spiritual care, even career health. We've got a really great episode coming up on that. Um, and there's just nothing more key to each of these than caring for our physical health. You're going to enjoy today's episode. You guys, my guest is just this really like scary, smart person walking around on this planet with us. She's one of those, well, in my experience, very rare gems who has both this analytical scientific mind, obviously, but then she also writes beautifully and produces poetry and plays the cello. Like she's right brain, left brain in all the best possible ways. And so I'm really, really pleased to have Dr. Daniel Ofri on today. And so Dr. Ofri, she's a, she's a physician at Bellevue hospital in New York city. Um, the very famous Bellevue hospital. Hello. Um, oldest public hospital in the United States. So really cool credentials. She's, um, a faculty member of the NYU school of medicine. So fancy. Um, she writes about medicine, specifically about the doctor-patient connection, which we're going to talk about in a really cool way today. I love her approach to this. Um, I, I loved everything she had to say. Um, and she writes for a lot of publications, like these little small off-brand um, publications you've probably never heard of, like New York Times and Slate Magazine, and just these little struggling things. Uh, and let's see, in 2000, Dr. Ofri co-founded the Bellevue Literary Review, Review, which is the very first literary magazine to arise out of a hospital. So I, I asked her about that because, of course, she's now in my world. Now I understand something she's doing, <laughs> writing. That's the one thing that she and I both apparently know about. Um and her latest book is called What Patients Say, What Doctors Hear. And so she's this wonderful bridge um, to help us communicate better with one another, to prioritize healthy results in our healthcare. She's just really, really cool. So this is an enlightening discussion, you guys. Um, I wanted to talk to her because she's this perfect person to tell us what really goes on in a doctor's world. She's been watching healthcare change since she began practicing a couple of deca decades ago. And then she spent her career um, taking a step back to remember that the path to physical health isn't just about forms and needles and tests and insurance payments and surgeries, but that physical health and mental health and soul health and healthcare in general is about people healing people. I loved her holistic approach. It's you are too. Uh, you're, you're hang in. Cause this is a great interview. So today, Dr. Ofri and I talk about relationships between doctors and patients and, um, how that's changed and how, what we can do to ensure, um, that we are making the most of our time together. And then she just has some really good ideas about what actually makes us healthy. And so, um, tune in for that. We kind of go all over the medical map on this one. You're not going to want to miss a single minute. It's very, very fascinating. So I'm very pleased to share my conversation with the brilliant and creative Dr. Danielle Ofri. Okay, Dr. Ofri, um, welcome to the For the Love podcast. I know that you are so busy and so slammed and so jammed. And so having you here on the show today in the middle of a workday, I'm just very grateful. Thank you for making the time for me and my listeners. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you. So I've filled everybody in a little bit about what it is you do. 
Um, but I would love to hear a little more first, if you don't mind, about who you are. So if you could tell us a little bit, like, why did you go into medicine? And are you doing today what you thought you would be doing when you stepped into med school, um, however many years ago? Um, so I always thought I'd be a veterinarian because I love that. <laughs> and when I got to my high school, public school, everyone who liked science was going into medicine. Not that I knew what, anything about what doctors did. I come from a family sure. of teachers, but I, you know, followed the crowd. Uh-huh. And then I ended up going to college by serendipity at McGill University in Montreal. Okay. I only attended because I was, it had a late application deadline. So I ended up there not knowing I'd be in for a 100% science program. And uh, it turns out whoops. if you like science, you're going to be a scientist. Medicine, that's for technicians. So then I was like, oh. now what do I do? So then I learned about an MD-PhD program. So I decided to do that. I figured out. So I ended up doing a PhD and an MD, thinking I'd go into science. But you know what? I got to my internship, and I completely fell in love with talking to patients, hearing their stories. Mm-hmm. So I stayed in clinical medicine. That's yeah. how I became a doctor. <laughs> oh, I'm so very happy for you, science people, um, that you would grab a hold of that tail and just hang on and let it take you where it's going to go. Um, I am uh, words and big ideas. And so thank goodness um, for you and your colleagues. I wonder what, what like, just so our, my listeners can get sort of a feel for your specific work. What does a typical day look like for you right now, if there really is one? Like, more, how, how much are you seeing patients versus doing admin versus helping students versus writing? You know, how does your day typically shake out? Well, I, um, so I'm a general internist. So a general doctor, I work at Bellevue Hospital, which is the oldest public hospital in the country, a big public hospital, and I work in the clinic. So, for example, this morning I saw patients all day. Um, with their diabetes and hypertension, heart disease, depression, obesity, all the usual run-of-the-mill stuff. So I see patients about half my time, and then about a third, it's an academic center, so I'm teaching, I'm supervising residents and medical students who are learning to become doctors, and then the other quarter third of the time is my time that I use for, for writing. I edit the Bellevue Literary Review, I work on my books and articles, and then the rest of the time, I just run around like a chicken without a head. <laughs> How long have you been at Bellevue? Uh, all my life. I went yeah. to medical school. I trained there. I'm a Bellevue lifer, and they'll probably take me out on a gurney. <laughs> um, I also feel like Bellevue is kind of the quintessential um, location for all our New York city hospital dramas. That's just what I think of. I feel like you're in the center of the famous hospital, New York. And so I'm sure everybody is incredibly, um, beautiful and fancy. Like all of the shows show us, um, these very realistic, yes, of course. It it is sort of this, I, I can't imagine a more wonderful place to work. I, I, not so much because of the drama, but because it, it attracts people from all over the world, from all walks of life, literally. Um, and I learn so much every day. I meet people I would never meet before. I learn things I wouldn't have known about. And it's a wonderful place of colleagues. And the patients are the mm. most amazing people, salt of the earth folks I could ever imagine having the fortune to work with. What a nice thing to say. When did you graduate um, from med school? So I finished uh, in 96. Okay. And I, I uh, finished 93 medical school, 96 residency. So I've been practicing at Bellevue as an, a faculty member for now 20 years. That's great. Um, so this is something that I find really interesting about you. Along with your MD and your PhD in pharmacology, you have actually also clocked in a lot of time in the arts and humanities, which is, of course, now you're in my world and I'm loving it. So not only have you written extensively, and we're going to get to this in a minute, um, about the way doctors and patients um, should or possibly could communicate, but you also started the first literary review by a hospital and you study the cello. So you are incredibly well-rounded and I find your um, areas of focus really, really fascinating. Can you talk for a minute about, well, both the cello and the literary review and why 
are the humanities so important to you? Why do you also pursue art um, as passionately as you pursue medicine? Um, and I'm curious if, in your opinion, you feel like the pursuit of creativity um, and artistic expression contributes to our overall health. That's a huge question. It was. I actually gave you five, so you can literally just start wherever you want. I'm actually going to go back to two questions ago when you asked okay. about if you're doing what you thought you would be doing. So okay, great. When I got to McGill, a school I chose because of the late application deadline, a graduating student said to me on his way out the door, if you don't take a class with Professor Ruth Weiss, you will have wasted your education at McGill. So, well, <laughs> that's a pretty strong recommendation. So... What does Dr. Ruth Weiss teach? She teaches Yiddish literature, which I've actually <laughs> heard of other than Schlepp and Schlemiel, but I'm like, okay, I'll take it. And <laughs> I sure. fell in love with all these writers from Eastern Europe who I'd never really known much about. And I began taking another class there and another, and then Russian literature and Russian history. So she gave me this whole entree into deep literary study, study that I hadn't really had at all in my science training. So um, she imbued me this love of, of literature. And then when I was um, finished my residency training, I ended up taking off a year and a half just to kind of get away. I trained during the height of the AIDS epidemic. So I took off a year and a half. I traveled mainly to Latin America to study Spanish. Mm. Many of my patients speak Spanish. And uh, I did some temp doctoring work to you know pay the bills. And mm. sort of along the way, I started writing down the stories of my patients because they were so singular especially the AIDS epidemic, not to write, yeah. but just to write them down. And when I got back to Bellevue and I was an attending as a faculty member, I wanted to incorporate the writing of stories. So I had my students kind of write the stories of their patients. Anyway, I ended up getting together with a, our new chair of medicine, and we each had a collection of wonderful stories. And we thought about making a student photocopy journal. We ended up with the Bellevue Literary Review, recognizing that there's such, a, I think, an intense need to discuss the vulnerabilities of our bodies. And so we made this literary journal of poetry, fiction, and nonfiction about health and healing. Um, and so now, did I expect to be like, you know, doing poetry between patients? Not at all. You know? Right. So I spend like, a, you know, 20% of my time editing the journal, reading. We get 4,000 submissions a year from all of them. Wow. So Gosh. there's, I think, a deep need to address health, illness, healing, from a non-technical perspective, but from a real human perspective. So that may even lead into the question of why do I think it's so important? I think for that, yeah. I, I believe that all of our great science times and, and health literature that we have addresses a part. That's right. Age, but not all. It doesn't address fear. Um, mm. It doesn't address shame. It doesn't address you know worry, uh, all of these things. And I believe that poetry and literature and music are, are a part of that. I love that. To me, that feels really fresh and it feels rare um, to hear from a doctor. Um, it, it seems like, and I'm painting with too wide a brush, obviously, but it kind of feels like just as an average person um, who's not, you know, a, a, in the medical field that our choices are either to reach for our medical scientific doctors and healers, or we reach for our soul care, mental health, sort of creative nurturing healers, but re rarely do we see those overlap. Um, it almost seems like we have to, to carve out two separate paths and hope that we can figure out how to walk on both of them. But um, I commend you, really commend you for pioneering, uh, really, I mean, something that didn't exist before. I wonder if you've seen any, um, either colleagues or anybody, has somebody picked up on this and done this in their own hospital or in their own sort of medical community? I, I can't imagine this has not inspired other, um, doctors or technicians to sort of take the baton and run with it in their lane. Absolutely. And, and I'm, I'm not, and I've gone baton for many other people as well. I think mm -hmm. there's, um, thankfully, I think a groundswell uh, of interest in addressing the entire issues because, listen, we're all patients, right? Even mm -hmm. your doctors, they're caring for their elderly parents or their sick children right. or their own medical issues. So you may get through life and not need a plumber or an accountant or a roofer, but you'll never get through life and avoid the medical world. Even if you're the healthiest right. person, you have your family. So it's so universal that we're all there. And I think 
for much of us, if we had the ability to get to those aspects of it, we would. We're so jam-packed in a medical visit, we often don't have time. That's right. Mental energy or bandwidth or ability. But um, I think we really do all want to be there. And increasingly, we're recognizing how critically important it is. Hmm. And even if you look at, here's an interesting study that looked at doctors, they rated the doctors just sort of job and life satisfaction. That's it. Mm-hmm. And then measured the blood pressure, sugar, and cholesterol level of their patients. So nothing okay. did how they, what medications, just how they felt in their lives. And the doctors were more satisfied in their lives and jobs. Their patients had better control of their sugar, their blood pressure, and their cholesterol. Hmm. And so tending to the doctor's sort of emotions and fears about life and about their work is important too. It really redounds to the good. well. And of course, attending to the patient's needs as well. That's so interesting. Hey guys, Jen breaking in to make a quick recommendation about a resource that I think is so great. A ton of us are juggling multiple hats, career, home, family, kids. And you may be like me when you see someone doing something really cool that interests you. You maybe just have like a a big idea for a great business or a new venture, like maybe a side hustle that becomes a full-time hustle, but you're not sure where to start. Okay. Here is a great place to start. It's called Skillshare. It's basically an online community for creators. So you've been wanting to get get into photography? They have classes for that. Trying to learn more about how to use and grow social media? They have one for that too. Listen, they have more than 25,000 classes in design and business and more. It's just an awesome resource. You can join the millions of students already learning on Skillshare today with a pretty amazing offer just for my listeners. So look, for two whole months, you can get Skillshare for free. Skillshare is offering the For the Love community two months of unlimited access to over 25,000 classes for absolutely free. So to sign up, it's easy. Go to Skillshare.com slash For the Love. And you can start your free two months right now. This is a really great way to invest in yourself, in your work, in your creativity, in your dreams, in your big ideas. So Skillshare.com slash for the love. Okay, back to our show. I want to... um explore basically something you just said a second ago over maybe, I don't know, the last 50 years or so, it seems like the doctor patient relationship has changed. Um, that it feels like it's more limited. Um, most people don't have the same family doctor, for example, for years and years and years, you know, even decades in the same family, like, like we used to. Um, and then sometimes when we step into a clinic, you know, we maybe get we maybe get ten minutes with our doctor. So I'm curious your perspective on this. Like, what has changed and why? Well, many many things have changed, um, and part part of it is the increased pressure on being quote productive, um, and again, the way that hospitals and practices keep the lights on is by you know billing for the things they do. And so the more you do, the more procedures you do. The more patients you see, the more revenue you have. So part of it is we mm. have a healthcare system that's treated like a commodity, like cars sure. and other things you buy, which already distorts the, the field quite, quite a bit. Um, I think with the rise of the, the EMR, the electronic medical record, there's more and more focus on data entry. And mm. I'll tell you, we, we just switched to a new EMR two weeks ago. So today mm. it's an hour per patient because I have to transfer Gosh. All. On the one hand... It was a nightmare. On the other hand, for each patient, we spent an hour going, yeah. all right, I, I pull up the chair next to me and we'll do this together. So we went through our things in detail, but there was so much time. I had a time to talk about their medical issues because we were sure. kind of feeding the bee. So, so the digitization, although it has many advantages, and I won't undermine mm-hmm. this, it really makes it hard to sort of be, be in the focus about how, how's your family and how's your daughter doing these things, all these things that matter to the patient. So, um, to your point, 
you wrote an entire book about the importance of what on its face maybe seems like a low-tech, undervalued diagnostic tool, which is simply conversation between a doctor and patient. Um, And I think that's a really insightful observation, um, especially in a world where we have what appears to be more diagnostic tests than ever. And we're all drowning in insurance forms and on your end of things, paperwork and um, all this input that you just mentioned. And so I, I think as patients, a lot of us Oh, it's so valuable. It's so meaningful when a doctor engages us, like you just mentioned, and um, asks us questions and kind of sees us and hears us. And um, I wonder if you, because this, you know, you spend a lot of time on this idea. Are you seeing doctors return to this kind of relational approach? Um, and then I would love to hear you answer also what do you wish that us patients knew? when we were talking with our doctors? Well, to start with your first question, I think that when I, when I give a talk on, on doctor-patient communication, I'm often asked, what's the response from your colleagues? Um, and it is all my colleagues, they want to spend time talking to their patients. Most important part, it's the best part of medicine, but that is so taken away by the digitization of, of our doctor-patient encounter that every doctor I talk to will say, you know, just, I would love to have an hour just to talk. Hmm. So there's no uh, reluctance to get there. So most want to be there and try to be there to the best of their ability. And so the question is pushing back against the insurance system, the hospital system. Hmm. It's very hard as individual doctors. I think we're trying to make the point. And part of the reason I I wrote the book, what patients say, what doctors hear is to make the point that in fact, conversation can be incredibly efficient, Hmm. but you can actually save quite a bit of money by making the correct diagnosis and not overordering unnecessary tests. And doctors overorder tests because there isn't time to probe the whole history. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm curious too how you feel about this. I mean, obviously human beings have always wanted a quick fix for our problems. That's not new. But, you know, in the last 10 years for sure, 15 even, um, you know, we can, now that we can order pizza by texting a single emoji, we've sort of taken instant gratification to, to new heights, I think. Um, and I, I, this has to have an effect on medicine and the expectations that patients are now putting on their doctors to find a very immediate cure, something they maybe saw on t- TV or they saw on a Facebook ad or who knows what. Um, and so I wonder how this affects your practice. And I know that we've come a long way medically, but do you, um, do you sense an unreasonable expectation that your patients are now um, putting upon their medical professionals in terms of quick and immediate and spot on diagnosis and then treatment? Well, just this morning, I have a patient with diabetes on massive doses of insulin and three other pills as well. And we got to, so I always ask about diet and he's eating white rice every day red meat two to three times a day, every day, (laughs) um, not exercising. And then he asked if there's some kind of surgery he can get to cure the diabetes. Right. Uh, You know, we just have to know there is not, and we have to talk about what you eat and what you do. And so I think we have a big disconnect from our lifestyle, which is a word that I, I think underestimates. It's just your life really. Um, Sure. um, that what you eat and what you do, your physical activity, have an enormous impact on our health. And we have to start there. I know it's not a quick fix, and it will never will be. On the other hand, there are many things that do give fairly quick you know, responses. Like when patients make small changes in their diet or small changes in exercise, very often you can feel a little bit better fairly quickly. And point out that it's not instantaneous, but uh, and not that you should go on a diet, but find a way of living that's comfortable, mm-hmm. um, and that you should enjoy life too. And if you need to have brownies once or twice, you know, a week, that's mm-hmm. as long as you're also having your salad and brown rice and, and, you know, finding ways that you can live and that most, most of these problems, they didn't occur overnight, so they won't get cured. That's overnight. right. But patients, I think, do have an expectation, partly from the advertising. I mean, since totally and advertising directly to consumers, it's really changed the tenor. Ask your doctor about X, Y, and Z, and, and oh, right, 
that offer, you know, as though overnight with this medication, you will be jogging on the beach with a golden retriever at your side, you know, and a sexy partner, you know, next to you. So, yeah, we, we present this. And, and also, I think the rise of social media that we are expected to present your best self. You're always having fun and being skinny, and eating a great meal and traveling here. And, and you can't actually be your normal self with your warts and, you know, and foibles. Yeah, I, I love hearing that from you because I talk about that exact phenomenon with my community a lot. And we talk about it from a lot of different angles, from an emotional health perspective, um, a cultural health p- perspective. But it's interesting to hear it from the medical perspective, too, that this this has an effect on us and on our expectations that we don't just place um, on ourselves, but we end up placing on our doctors or on our spouses, um, on our friend groups. And it's so unhealthy and weird. It's such a weird time to be a human person, um, and maintain any sense of normalcy. Um, so let me ask you this in the medical world, what do you think we're getting right? Um, what are you feeling good about as you see, patients, um, and, and just the general medical community in 2019? Now, I see two, two big things. One is the idea of the doctor-patient partnership. And you know, as today's, I tell my patients, and pull your chair up to the computer, let's do this together. That's a very different model than we had you know, 20 years ago, where the doctor sure. said, do this, and the patient said, okay, and didn't ask any questions. Oh, right. So we're both, I mean, obviously, you can go overboard, and their patients will send 20 emails a day and you know, and, uh, about their shark tooth cartilage and all the things they want to know about instantaneously. But for most patients, it's, it's been salutary. It really can let, let's decide if this is best for you or not. So kind of shared decision-making, and that we're, we're a team on this. And there are many people in the team besides just us. There are nurses and nutritionists and spouses and friends and all these people in the team. And the second thing is really the focus on nutrition. Um, and then our, our clinic in particular has been very much focused on the plant-based diet. So eating, and you don't have to be any fancy diet, just eat basic, you know, fresh fruits and vegetables, unprocessed foods, low in the food chain. It's fairly straightforward. We're going back to these real basics of that is not just a side lifestyle. That is your life and your health. And to look at that before we throw on fixed medications and referrals to specialists, let's start with that. And I bet we can get a lot of the way there. I appreciate you saying that. It's it's not hard to track um, sort of our cultural trends here in America, our industrialized diet, um, our fast food culture, um, and then even just working ourselves to death with such a, such a go, go, go pace. And it's, it's not hard to, to see the exact identical arc with all the same ailments you mentioned earlier, heart disease and, you know, hypertension and obesity. And, um, it's, it's curious that we are unable um, to line these up and to ma- to realize that we actually have a lot of control over our own health and a lot of control over our own well-being. I appreciate hearing that you um, take a holistic approach with your patients when it comes to their um, treatment and their care. Do you Are they receptive to that? Do you find in general that your patients are willing to receive that kind of instruction that doesn't come with a pill attached to it or a procedure attached to it or whatever? Uh, mostly, I mean, most patients don't really want pills and things. And so it's a bit of a relief that you can say, well, these are things that are actually in your control or at least partially. Mm-hmm. And we'll often talk about, well, you know, it's, it's, it's more expensive to eat healthfully very often, you know, that chips and soda are cheaper than milk and fruit. But you know, my patient today, the guy who wanted surgery for his diabetes, complained that yeah. brown rice costs more than white rice. But I said, mm-hmm. but if you decrease the portion size in half, it actually the net price will be the same. Yeah. Um, and to sort of think of it, there are things that you can do in your, it's in your power that, that you know, and, and water is cheaper than soda, even though soda is cheap. So I think most patients are... Most people, I think, are amenable to that. But there's definitely a, a segment that really wants a medical answer for everything. You know, why mm. am I getting wrinkles? Why am I getting old? Why am I, Why are my knees hurting when I walk up down the stairs? And I just want to say, well, you know, welcome to your 40s and 50s. <laughs> sure. But if you exercise, you can, you know, minimize that or help, not maybe cure, but help uh, decrease the, the symptoms. And the other thing I want to add is that I also talk to patients about 
what makes them happy in life? Do you have uh, a hobby? Do you have a, a passion, something you do? And you'd be surprised how many people have no hobbies at all. Hmm. And, and, and would just mainly gets filled in with either TV or kind of random social media, you know, fluff that doesn't have any real meaning for them. And I think finding meaning in life in something, whether it be literature, religion, study, mm-hmm. sports, family, uh, is what helps us go forward. And many people have a lot of sort of existential pains in, in their mm-hmm. lives. And part of it is loss of real connection. Mm. Uh, you're singing my song. I um, have immersed myself in a lot of research that suggests this exact thing that um, loneliness is a real key factor to our um, health epidemics and disconnection and lack of belonging, that these have very real, like physiological effects on our health. And, um, but they're just not necessarily levers that most people think to pull. Uh, when it comes to improving their health. And so it thrills me to hear a doctor um, talk about things like, you know, nutrition and connection and hobbies and belonging in their lives, because I think these are all, put this all together, this is a great metric um, for becoming a healthier community. Hey guys, Jen breaking in real quick to talk about a word I don't like, diets. Doesn't the word itself just kind of make your eyes roll? We automatically think about deprivation, calorie counting, basically just no fun. So I think there's a new way to look at how we eat. Noom, so that's N-O-O-M, it's helping people build just better habits toward food, Uh, With real personalized training, your own support team, it only takes 10 minutes a day. So they assign you a goal specialist who is a behavioral change professional, right? A nutrition expert and a fitness trainer all in one. It's so different, guys. And it'll change the way that you look at your eating habits. Encouragement, zero shaming, and just help to keep on track toward the real prize, getting healthy. Noom is designed for results. It's out with the old habits, in with the new. So sign up for your trial today at Noom, N-O-O-M dot com slash for the love. So that's Noom dot com slash for the love. All right, back to our show. Dr. Ofer, I want to ask you this because you're in a field, uh, obviously, that's traditionally been more male-dominated. Uh, it's very heartening to watch so many more women becoming doctors um, with every generation and, frankly, making strides in all the STEM areas. Um, so I'm curious. Uh, there's no question about it. There, I, there must still be gender nuances in your field. Um, really no matter what your expertise is. And so do you find that patients have preferences about seeing a male or a female doctor? And if so, are those preferences kind of based on the fact that that doctor, the doctor that matches our gender may be able to relate to our health issues more? Or do you think it's, is it a little bit more misogynistic in nature? Maybe not at all. Maybe I'm inventing this, but I'm just curious what you see as sort of the gendered dynamic in the medical field right now. I see it very little with patients. Patients seem to not, they're used to women and men as doctors. I've almost never seen that as a problem. Um, but what I do see the gendered aspects of medicine is certainly women are now uh, are more than 50% of the incoming medical classes. But as they pick specialties, it very much spreads out, whereas women dominate in primary care fields, internal medicine, pediatrics, OB, but in things like surgery and cardiology, these are still predominantly mm. women. The other aspect where it's gendered is promotions, and that's where you see a big skew. So we're certainly in an academic medical center, we're, we're fighting in, in my department, in our primary care clinic, we are majority women. Um, but, you know, in filling out the greater ranks of leadership, that has not caught, caught up yet. And, and I believe there definitely is, you know, bias there. 
There's also mm. women take off time or go part time for children and then so aren't getting the same number of publications or advancements or the fields they choose to do their um, academic work, maybe it's education and not bench research, is not as mm. well recognized. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'm, I'm, it, it, who can know? It's hard to know the mind of every practitioner, but I wonder if women tend to steer their ship into those fields that you mentioned, OB, general practice, um, as opposed to some of the surgical fields. I wonder if that is a sense of this is where I will have more success. This is where I see women. Um, or if there are any systemic or structural factors inside med school, inside residency to kind of separate the, the women from the men. Did you ever have a sense, in other words, as a med student, that you were being sort of steered in a certain direction? Uh, not necessarily, but it might be, you know, the availability of mentors. Uh, mm. Surgery, there are fewer mentors. Although I will say NYU surgery program last year, you know, they have seven separate surgical fields, plastics and, and cardiovascular, pediatric. Mm-hmm. All seven chief presidents were women last year. So that was Interesting. a first, and it was quite uh, the amazing seven, they call them. <laughs> but that really stood out because that hasn't happened, um, you know, in a long yeah. time. I think... The pipeline is getting there, but it's hmm. slower. The you know the slope of the of the line is slower than it or smaller than it than it should be. Yeah. Yeah, you know, but not at the rate, given the women's you know production and 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 uh, contributions to the field. So we're getting there. Hmm. And partly, I think women may choose fields that have more flexibility for sure. families. And you know, a lot of surgical subspecialties make it really impossible, you know, hmm. because they're the hours just don't make that that a possibility, or, or the training's longer or taking time out is, is not feasible. So there's some self-selection. It may also just be presence of mentors. So just like the rest of the world, we, um, as we continue to make discoveries and innovations, even medical standards or ideals change, I wonder if there have been any new wrinkles to the basics that we've been hearing for years um, about preventative care. Is there is there new um, information that we have access to now, or do the same sort of standard, basic, these are the more or less healthy building blocks of a, or the building blocks of a healthy life. Are those still the standards or do we have any others to add? I think those are still the standards. I think we're falling back in some areas, for example, vaccination, you know, where these measles outbreaks are, are clearly, oh, people are not getting vaccinated and, and, you know, partly is, a lot of people don't remember what polio was like. And if you ask your grandparents about what polio was like, you know, they were thrilled to get the vaccination. And so it's right. scary for, as a medical perspective that some children are not getting protected. So we have a fallbacks there. Future things, you know, the availability of genomics to sort of individualized medicine is uh, still on the horizon in my feeling. I think there's a lot mm. of things like 23andMe, but they're not quite ready for prime time because we haven't yet developed what to do with the information. Right. People get this and then don't have um, uh, any sort of validated uh, or well-studied plans to do with that. There's a big disconnect and a lot of fear can come up and a lot of poor decisions can be made in the absence of a good context. So I I think we will get there. And, and maybe 20 years from now, the genome will be in the electronic medical records. So when I prescribe medication, it can say, you know, here's the do- dose to adjust for this genome or this is the better choice for that. We're not there yet. But I think it mm. will get there. But I think our, our basic, you know, um, things that have been validated, and I always, you know, refer people to the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force, you know, a very straightforward, no punches pulled, here's the information we have on mammograms, here's why it's considered special mm. in this group or why it's not, and and doesn't make any, um, you know, extravagant claims, but is it's pretty conservative in its claims in that it doesn't do something new until there's really data to support it. So that's my go-to. So I want to expand on something you just said. Uh, obviously, not only has our culture dramatically changed in the last 10 years, but the medical world has as well. Uh, we've watched it play out in the halls of Washington and across our news feeds. I mean, healthcare is one of the biggest 
buzz concepts um, over all of us right now, especially as we sort of steer into another season of campaigning. This is just something we're all going to be hearing about um, in both clear and nebulous ways. And so I wonder, and I'm just going to ask you to pontificate, (laughs) if you had to just predict um, how do you think we will receive medical care in the next 20 or 30 years or 40 years um, in new ways or in innovative ways? Like, what, what do you just expect to see? Well, what I expect to see or what I hope to see? Let's, uh, maybe, maybe both. Well, so one of the, the trends that I, that I find heartening is I think people are starting to recognize healthcare as a basic human right. I think yes. we're shifting from it's a commodity that if you're rich, you can get it. If you don't have money, you don't get it. The way we buy cars and houses. And so that shift, I think, will then change how care is delivered. If we look at healthcare like, you know, police protection or fire protection, you know, we pay our taxes and we all, we all call the fire department and the fire truck comes. No matter. Sure. So I think, I think we're going to lean toward that. Now, it may not look like Europe, but the idea that everyone should, de- should deserves to get their health taken yeah. care of will change how we give it. It may have to shift in our, our delivery mechanisms. Hmm. And that, because I see patients say, well, I'm not going to do the CAT scan because I can't afford it now or this medication. Right. And then their health suffers. So I hope and I predict that we will get there where that isn't going to be the consideration, that if you need hmm. this, our society budgets its resources and time for that because these are all members of society. Plus, if someone gets sick, that's a drag on society. They can't work. They can't take care of their children. So I hope... Um, and I think we will get to that point. So I see that happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next is how artificial intelligence might help us. I mean, mm-hmm. right now, there are 2 million scientific papers published every year, right? So I can't read those. And even if I could, I right. could absorb it all. So when I want to, um, you know, make a, uh, uh, a recommendation for a patient, it would be great to survey the literature and make sure I'm doing the right thing. If we had a way that an AI algorithm could help me for this patient, mm-hmm. This medication, that condition, well, what's the best approach? And and, and that would be so um, so helpful. Oh, that's interesting. You know, we're getting there with some very simple, somewhat crude systems now. For uh, uh-huh. example, reading a, a, a CAT scan, maybe rather than the radiologist just read it themselves, an AI algorithm does the first read of looking for things that are hard to see, and then the radiologist yeah. reviews it. That can increase the diagnostic efficiency and accuracy. So I think that artificial intelligence... We'll begin to help us, not in miraculous, it's not going to cure your cancer overnight, but it's going to take things that are hard to do now. Like, for example, if I want to look back at my patient's blood test for the last 25 years, well, that will take me a long time. A good algorithm hmm. pull it all up and then, oh, here's the trend, or here's the CAT scan they got when they visited Nevada and had it, you know, when the ER, that kind of thing, AI could help me pull together and then maybe make the humans a little better at what they're doing. Mm, that's pretty fascinating. And, you know, that's, this is some of the same intel we're hearing out of the technology community. Um, it's going to be really something to watch roll out in our lifetimes, I think, and uh, how this is going to change medical care for our kids and their kids. It's going to be really, really fascinating. everybody, this is Jen. Just a quick pause because I'm really super excited to talk about one of our new sponsors um, that has actually been brought up multiple times in this podcast, most notably in one of our most thought-provoking episodes with my friend Lisa Sharon Harper. Um, she actually found out so many amazing things about her lineage and then used that information to further her activism work. And I kind of caught the bug. And so we're really happy to welcome a new sponsor, which is Ancestry.com. I am actually waiting on my own results from Ancestry right now. Here's what's cool specifically about Ancestry, which I've also heard from others who've used their service. It's this kind of wealth of information they give you about your family tree, this really amazing geographic detail about your ancestors' journeys over time, So they have combined DNA results with over 100 million family trees. I mean, my gosh, billions of records to give you more insight into your genealogy and your origins. 
the, their level of details outstanding. And I'm, I can't wait to get my results back, um, to dig in a little bit deeper into my heritage. In the meantime, Ancestry is extending an, a great offer, um, to listeners of our podcast. So for a limited time, when you go to ancestry.com slash for the love through May 13th, you guys, so not that long through May 13th, you can get your ancestry DNA kit for only $59. So that's a really great deal, um, for the amazing amount of detailed info that you will get about your family history. So one more time, go to ancestry.com slash for the love for your $59 ancestry DNA kit today. Okay. You guys back to the show. ask you as we're wrapping this up, these are just three sort of questions we're asking all of our guests in the health series. And you can just answer it right off the top of your head. Um, okay. What's one small thing you do every day to take care of yourself in some way? I play the cello. Oh my goodness. Can you talk about the cello for just a minute? I touched on it earlier, but we didn't really dig, dig into it. Um, how long have you been playing? So, uh, uh, how about my daughter's 13. So 13 years ago, we lived in Costa Rica for a year where she was. And her sister, who was four or five, was going into kindergarten. And I knew they were teaching um, violin. So I thought I'd get her started. And I asked the teacher, what's the best way to help a kid practice? Thinking sticker charts or ice cream. They said, oh, sing a parent practice. So a good parent went out and bought a cheap cello and started taking lessons. My daughter long quit, but I stayed with her. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> wonderful teacher and we meet every other we met yesterday yeah and um it pushes me to learn you know in medicine i i learn more every day but in small amounts it's kind of flat plateaued but in music because i have a teacher who keeps pushing me to take the next step i'm still on a steep slope and that is so exciting and Mm. so and and with a string instrument or any instrument it's so focused you know in the hospital phones are ringing pages going off people knocking sure in, in cello, I just have to get the one note. I've got to find huh. the note. I have to make it right. And then I have to make it beautiful. Yeah. And we don't think about beauty much in our regular life. And sort of focus yeah. on just that it sounds right and in tune. That is such a, a luxury. So that is oh. so I, I don't catch up on the cables on all those series on, on Netflix, but I do get uh-huh. cello. I love that answer so much. Um, how about this? Who's one either, and this could be somebody personal to you or maybe from afar that you've just, you've learned from as kind of a distant mentor. Um, who's a, a teacher or a thinker or a leader in any way um, that's impacted your physical or mental or spiritual health that you would recommend to the rest of us? Watching the videos of Benjamin Zander, Z-A-N-D-E-R, Zander. Uh-huh. He is this wacky musician who um, has a great TED Talk on, on appreciating music. And okay. he's funny and engaging. Why everyone can find just beauty and thrill in music. And I, I recommend that TED Talk. And I've watched his other master classes. But Benjamin Zander, just have a good time with him. Oh, I'm so happy to learn about him. I will, listeners, I will link over on the transcript page to Benjamin Zander's everything. So you can have a little listen if you'd like to. And then here's the last question. We actually ask every guest in every series this question. It's from one of my favorite teachers. Um, Her name is Barbara Brown Taylor. And she um, posed this question to us and I love it. And you can answer it as sincerely and poignantly or just as silly and small as you want. It could be any sort of answer and we've had them all. Um, the question is this, what is saving your life right now? Oh, um, all right. I'll, if I stick with music, I will say WC. And I'm working on a WC cello sonata. And the reason WC is so life-saving is he is so out of bounds from normal rules. There are all the rules set up for hundreds of years. This is the way you play music, the way you compose it. And he threw them all out the window. And um, it, it's like someone, it's like Jackson Pollock with the paint. He just went all over the place. And now I've got to try and get into his brain to play his music and to sort of, you know, I've been a rule follower all my life. I've gone to medical school and, and throwing out the rules and trying something wild and, and, and wacky is just uh, like a vitamin pill for the brain. And the soul. <laughs> 
I love that. I love a good challenge too, um, where I feel like my brain is stretched and I'm at capacity and, um, there's nothing I love more than knocking down an obstacle. So, um, that is a fabulous answer. Um, before I let you go, can you just, um, let any of my New York listeners know like where they could ever find you? Um, where would they go? Well, so I work at Bellevue Hospital, uh-huh. but anyone can find me at uh, DanielleOfrey.com. I have a contact button and it just goes right to me. I also have a kind of monthly-ish newsletter of interesting articles on what I write or medical humanities. You can subscribe. It's non-commercial. Um, and so you're welcome to reach me through there. I'll write back to anyone. Oh, that's fabulous. That's great. My newsletter is also monthly ish. Um, and that's about this. That's as good as I can do. So I, uh, I applaud your, um, your get it out whenever you get it out. Uh, I want to thank you so much for your time today. I found this conversation so interesting and, um, and encouraging too. And so I thank you for your approach to healthcare. I love your, your balanced look at what makes us well and what makes us healthy and what makes us happy. I just could not agree with you more in any possible way. And so, um, I am so grateful for your time today. Thank you for lending us an hour, um, to teach us and to stretch us and encourage us. My pleasure, Jen. Anytime. Love it. Love her. Are you ever in this place where you Everything you're learning seems to be coming at you identically from all the different avenues. That's how it is for me right now. I feel like every expert I'm learning from right now, the books that I'm reading, the studies that I'm reviewing are all sort of saying the same thing, all pointing toward the same avenues of health. And it's just empowering. It's empowering to hear it from um, all these practitioners and all these professionals. Um, I want to make sure that you know that Dr. Ofri has a bunch of stuff that you may be interested in. Over at jenhatmaker.com, underneath the podcast tab, we're going to have links to her book. Like that's a really useful tool for those of us who, um, you know, have ongoing relationship with, with doctors, which is all of us really. Um, also, she's got a couple of really cool Ted talks. We'll link to those also. One was about fear. Like there's just, she's got some great stuff. You guys, we barely scratched the surface with her. Um, and so Amanda builds out that page for you every single week, every single podcast episode, all this extra curriculum, extra content resources, links. I mean, please be using that resource because it is is so useful and wonderful. Everything at your fingertips, including the written transcript of every single interview. Um, Should you want to go back and look at it with your eyes or cut and paste any parts to use? Anyhow. And then of course, we'd love for you to share um, any episodes that you love. Thanks for putting them on your social media accounts. Thanks for sending them to your daughters and your sisters and your moms and your friends. That's like so meaningful to us. Also, don't forget to subscribe. We love having you as a subscriber and then you never have to look for a single podcast. It just shows up for you week after week. And we are thrilled about it. So on behalf of Amanda and I, and my producer, Laura and her crew, we, um, love you. We love the for the love podcast community. Um, we have, so many more amazing, um, episodes in this series. And then the series for the rest of the year, just killer. Absolutely killer. It's just such a 2019 is coming in hot. Um, okay, you guys, thanks for being here and I'll see you next week. That's it for today's show. Hope you enjoyed this chat. Be sure to subscribe to my mom's podcast and give it a thumbs up rating. If you like it from the whole Hatmaker family, I hope you have a great week and see you next time.